Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Nicola Rollock about the racial code, tales of resistance and survival. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. Um, I'm delighted um, that that we're talking about this book um, for for two reasons, really. One is I think it's a remarkable achievement to have synthesised so much uh, data into a a, a book that's really kind of readable, really engaging, and, and really uh, sort of sets out both a lot of uh, data and a lot of academic theory um, in a way that I, I hope most people can read. And then the second thing is, I think it's a really important book. You know, it, it's an important book uh, right across uh, both, you know, British, um, American, Western European um, societies in terms of racial inequality. And the place to start with is the title. Um, the title introduces this idea of a, a kind of a racial code. And it's something that you sort of draw on to tell a story about racial inequalities that, that you've been working on for a very long time. And indeed, you say since the early 1990s at, at the start of the book. So, so what is going on with the title? Um, what is the, the sort of the racial code that you're referring to? And, and how does this bring together this work you've been doing for a long time? Yeah, sure. Well, well let me step back a moment, if I may. And, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, well, just for listeners, this is a non-fiction book. Um, and I am an academic. Um, I'm Professor of Social Policy and Race at King's College London. And I also run my own consultancy looking at issues around racial justice so this is a book that is about those types of issues it's non-fiction but what I would say it's not a traditional academic text and as you rightly point out what I've done is I've gone back through the research evidence the data government reports and I've pulled all of those together and mixed them together if you will and pulled out some key themes that I think are really interesting and current and ongoing. And I've crafted stories or narratives around those themes. And I've also included 
end notes back to the evidence, so back to the source, if the reader wants to go and read uh, a bit further. So that's a bit about the format and the style. And then to come to your question, Dave, uh, around the racial code, well, my principal argument, and I wouldn't say it's one that's particularly contentious, is that we live in a society that's shaped by norms, by expectations, by rules, many of which are unspoken, but we somehow learn through the ebb and flow of daily life. So to give you an example, as a woman, I have learned that I should have my keys ready before I reach my front door as a matter of safety within a patriarchal society where women are subjected to violence or there's the threat of violence. That's something that I've come to understand. Um, I've come to also understand about walking on the other side of the road. And actually, we were taught this at school. I went to all girls school and we were explicitly told in terms of protecting ourselves as young women. And it's something I've held on to into adulthood, walking on the side of the pavement where the traffic is oncoming. So these aren't things that are necessarily written down, but they shape the fabric of society around what it means to be a woman in this type of society. And my argument is that these same types of rules and norms and stereotypes are also true when it comes to race and racism. And that's why I talk about the racial code. And what I'm doing in the book, Dave, is shedding a light or focusing on the nature of that code and why we don't move ahead in our thinking around racial justice as quickly as we might. And it's because we don't pay attention or we don't pay sufficient attention to this code. You mentioned the the approach of sort of crafting narratives to illustrate various aspects of the racial code and how it underpins and upholds racial inequalities. And I think... Um, we, we can maybe take a, a few of them in turn. And you've mentioned that this sense um, of, I suppose, kind of, you know, patriarchal violence uh, with, with your example um, about learning unwritten rules about being a woman in, in public space. Yeah. And yeah. the book, you know, goes into quite a lot of detail with, with the narratives about individual sense um, of being racialized in, in particular professional spaces. And one place to start is with, uh, Femi, who is, um, I guess, the first uh, character we, we we encounter in the book, the first of these narratives. And Femi's story tells us about racial inequality in universities, but also at the same time, it tells us about racism in professions in, in British society yeah. and, and actually in, in many other professional uh, contexts more generally. And I wonder if you could introduce Femi, tell um, her story, and then um, t- tell us what that story, you know, means in terms of racism in, in professions. Sure. And, and, and yes, you're right. So what, what the book does is it primarily, though not exclusively, uh, looks at a series of scenarios, scenarios or moments across a range of settings. Some of those settings are professional settings. So we might have, as with Femi, 
Femi's story. It's based in the academy, so in higher education, in our universities. Um, but we have other settings that are focused around policing, that are focused around a private members club, for example. So there's different settings. And I, that's obviously deliberate because I'm wanting to show the ways in which subtle forms of racism so racial microaggressions, for example, slights and put downs and otherings show up in almost unremarkable and very normal ways in everyday life. But to bring you, Dave, you mentioned Femi. So Femi um, is the protagonist in chapter one, which is called Acts of a Lone Woman. And chapter one is broken down into two parts. Part one is called Tap Shoes. And then part two is called The Oracle. And in Tap Shoes, we meet uh, Femi. She's uh, British, Nigerian. And um, what she, uh, what we see her do, and we don't really understand why, but what we see her do is to display in a really visceral and evocative way her reaction to when she finally is promoted at um, an elite university. And as I say, we don't know why, but it's really unusual and perhaps extreme, some might argue, reaction to this news of her appointment. So she pushes back, she challenges her colleagues in terms of the way she's been treated. And what I wanted to do in that chapter is really give life and forgive the slight um, <laughs> indulgence, but I wanted to give life to some of my own research findings into the career experiences and strategies of black female professors. And what we know in the UK, and this also holds true in the US, is that um, black female scholars are least likely to be professors when compared with other ethnic groups. And so the research that I carried out, I think three or four years ago now, time flies, um, I really wanted to understand who these women were, their experiences of reaching professorship, and also whether there was any advice they might give to future generations about how to navigate the university sector. And so with Femi, I am, if you like, pulling on, drawing on some of those findings from the empirical research and giving it life through this character. So as I said, in Tap Shoes, we bear witness to what some people describe as a, a breakdown on the part of Femi, but we don't really know much about her backstory, Dave. In part two, I take on a different voice. I've crafted this through a different voice. And we have a character that I've called the Oracle. And if you will, if you imagine the setting is a stage in, in, in central London. So we might think of somewhere like the National Theatre, any kind of well-known um, performance venue. And I use the character of the Oracle to talk about Femi's journey. And if, if you will, if listeners can close their eyes and imagine this, I'm thinking of um, great actors such as Glenda Jackson or James Earls Jones, where they're using that gravitas, not just in terms of their voice and the cadence and the pace, 
but also the way they take up and make use of the stage. So the Oracle's a quite melodramatic figure. She has presence. She has authority. And she is in some ways teasing the audience, who's mainly white, apart from one black man with his white partner. And she's she is playing with them. She's teasing them. She's saying, look, this is how you treat people in your workplaces. Don't think that this is a one-off. No, no, no. This is no one-off. Femi's experience is repeated. It's replicated by other black women. This is not indeed a one-off. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to give life, Dave, to the data. Because what I would say is that Many of us know the data. We know the headline statistics. We see the newspaper articles. But we don't necessarily understand what it's like to live, to feel, to experience, to have to strategize in order to navigate these particular forms of racism. And so that's what I begin with in Chapter 1, Acts of a Lone Woman, this journey that Femi has gone through. This idea of not a one-off, I, I think, is, is is particularly important, as is the idea of kind of giving life um, to, to to the lived experience that is not underneath, but is bound up uh, with, with the data, with some of the statistics. And, and and this comes through really powerfully, I think, with Miles's story. And for, for Miles, um, we encounter both the sense of um, racial inequality not being a one-off, but also actually it, it ties into one of the things you said earlier about the lack of, of progression and representation um, for black women professors in the UK. We encounter Miles in the context of, uh, I guess, a kind of networking opportunity um, in a, a sort of private members club, you know, one, one of these kind of elite institutions that are not about work, but also at the same time kind of a really important to sort of getting on and getting ahead. And what, what's, what's really fascinating for Miles, I, I think, is the way that you adopt a, a really sort of explicitly intersectional analysis where you try and tell the story of, you know, here is a middle class setting, a middle class person, but we have to understand the intersection of class and race if we're going to understand both racial inequalities, but also actually the limits of just having, say, a class based analysis. So who is Miles? What 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 is Miles's story? So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. What I'm wanting to do in Members Only Chapter Three is to draw attention to the ways in which social class, but in this sense, in this context, middle being middle class, middle class status works alongside and intersects with uh, racism and racial identity. And so Miles is our protagonist in Members Only. And he is of mixed heritage. He's clearly middle class. And we know that because he has all of the, the markers of middle class status. So, you know, his suit, for example, has been made to measure on Savile Row, which I think, as most listeners might be familiar with, is a very uh, historic and well-known road of uh, high-end tailors in the middle of London. Um, So, you know, he he fits in insofar as he has this middle-class status and he's been invited to a reception at this private members club in London. So he has been granted permission, if you will, formal permission to enter that space because he fits. 
But what we bear witness to and what I'm trying to do in this particular chapter, though, and I'd be really interested if you think it works, because I talk about the book a lot, but it's also really interesting for me to hear how people feel and react to it. And I know your area of interest is is around class. But what I'm wanting to show here are the subtle ways in which British society, and I think perhaps this is quite a uniquely British phenomenon, in the way that we do social class and we do middle classness, if you will. And so this this, this, uh, private members club, um, it has lots of pictures or paintings of dead white men on the walls, um, you know, huge fireplaces, um, canapes, men who once upon a time before that uh, smoking ban would have been smoking cigars with their whiskey. So, you know, there's all these class signifiers. And what happens to Mars is that he enters this space and he has a very brief exchange with um, the porters because he asks the porter for directions. And it's not spoken, but the porter retains some reserve, some um, frostiness in his exchange with Miles. And I give you an insight only momentarily into the porter's head. And he says something to the effect of, you know, he's supposed, because he looks at Miles kind of quizzically, what is this person doing here? And he looks at Miles in that way because Miles, to his mind, presents an oddity, irrespective of his middle class status. The very fact of his skin colour represents for this porter an oddity, something to be paused over, questioned, a potential discomfort. And so he helps him, he gives him directions, but there is a frostiness to his demeanour. And it's, it's again, <coughs> excuse me, what I'm doing is I'm zooming in. I'm wanting to invite the reader and invite your listeners to think about the ways in which overt acts of racism are all often preceded by these more subtle forms of racism. We shouldn't be thinking about racism as only in the hands of odd people in society, those at the fringes of society. There are subtle forms of racial bias that play out all the time. And so anyway, Miles later goes on and uh, finds the room in which the reception is taking place. And it is the case that he has been invited as as a special guest by the society who is hosting this reception. And without giving away too many spoilers, um, we bear witness to and follow Miles in his journey as he experiences this reception, welcomed by some, but he has a particular exchange with someone who I've called Digbeth Winthorpe Brown, <laughs> which, you know, is, is yeah, and everyone always laughs when I say that name because it's so over the top with its um, middle class inflections. <laughs> um, but Digbeth is almost stereotypically he's very much a trope of what we might describe on British stores soils as um, a kind of well-to-do gentleman who looks down upon others and you know we might not look too far from our political system for some very live examples of Digbeths. 
So, and Digbeth is somewhat confused by Miles and what he could possibly, Dave, <laughs> be doing in this space. And he doesn't, and I think this is absolutely fundamental, he doesn't say to Miles, who on earth are you? We don't usually have black people here. What are you doing here? He doesn't say that. But what he does is he proceeds to interrogate him and ask him a series of questions, such as what do you do for a living, um, which are aimed at establishing Miles' legitimacy. So he's really asking, what right do you have to be here? And so what I zoom in on is this interplay, this conversation between Miles and Digbeth, where, where Digbeth is judging, assessing, evaluating, critiquing Miles's presence, but without always saying it explicitly. And I think that exchange is one which many middle-class Black people will be familiar with. And let me just finish my point, Dave, before I hand back to you by saying this. Quite often when it comes to debates around advantage and mobility, certainly in the UK, we tend to think that uh, moving ahead in the social class structure or ladder is sufficient, so advancing in terms of class status, accruing middle class um, values or ways of being, is sufficient to protect you from racism. And what I'm wanting to demonstrate here, and others have done it in the US contact context, we know, for example, Karen Lacey's work um, on the black middle classes. What I'm wanting to demonstrate is that, of course, being middle class gives you access to certain spaces, but it doesn't guarantee acceptance. And that is my focus for this chapter. I mean, it's worth saying Digbeth uh, is a really good illustration of how um, satirical and, and at times, you know, quite hilarious the, the book is, despite its, you know, really, really sort of serious uh, subject matter. And, and I think the book um, deploys satire re really effectively. It, it does it particularly well uh, when, when thinking about uh, the relationship uh, between race and contemporary uh, forms of, of particularly white uh, feminism um, it, it does it in, in various kind of kind of points throughout the book the the, the thing I, I think that comes to mind with, with what you've laid out with the analysis of how class and race intersect in Miles story it, it makes me think of something that comes quite late uh, or, or much later in the book which is the way that Miles experiences that setting um, as a set of subtle and and in you know, Digbeth's case, kind of not very sore forms of exclusion. But one of the things you, you bring in later on in the book is the way that institutions um, can actually be welcoming um, to racial diversity, but as a way of kind of commodifying and, and using an individual's race. And, and this is the story with, with, with Nigel. And Nigel is, is fascinating partially because um, he's, he's in, um, I guess, the kind of the arts, the creative industries, you know, he, he's in a section um, of uh, the economy that is very, very keen to be seen 
to be kind of uh, diverse, uh, welcoming, open, you, you know, but based on things like uh, the intangible idea of talent, but at the same time has um, ultimately a, a quite hostile environment um, for, for, for racial diversity. And, and here, I think that the question I'd like to pose is not just Nigel's story, and if you could tell me Nigel's story, but how Nigel's story contrasts with uh, I guess uh, his his kind of boss, really, um, which which is someone called Sally, and and you draw a, a narrative of two quite distinctive career and two quite distinctive inter institutional uh, trajectories. So, who are Nigel and, and and who is Sally? Well, well, if you don't mind, I'd really love to go back to something you said earlier because you you talked about the fact that there are parts of the book that are hilarious Dave and it's really interesting to me because you're not the first person to have said that and I'm really curious about which parts you find hilarious (laughs) yeah I mean look you know Digbeth because the listeners have have heard that story it it, it is the kind of thing that you'd almost expect to you know to see presented as you know maybe kind of story by a stand-up comic or, or you know, presented as um, think, thinking about, you know, maybe like a TV sketch show or something, you know, precisely the, the sort of almost kind of uh, parody of this, uh, as you mentioned, you know, contemporary political figures who have this Digbeth-style uh, elite status. But I think really effectively to make the point of, you know, actually, you know, whilst this seems like a parody, this is based on the data, you know, these are very... Uh, real experiences that are being drawn out here. Yes, and and I think, you know, because you're not the first person to point that out, and it's really interesting to me as someone sat as I was trying to find the language, to find the tone, to find the rhythm to present this particular scenario. I mean, that there's people who've uh, point like po- excuse me, people have pointed out other parts of the book which they found really funny as well. Um, and I, I'm really interested by that because obviously you can never predict how people are going to react to a text, but it it does, I think, as you say, show the way. It's a kind of form of parody. It seems like a form of parody, but at the same time, it definitely is serious. Because I suppose if I'm thinking about this as a black woman and my experiences, if I can just personalize this for a moment, you know, one goes through a moment such as that, and your mind is on overdrive because you're trying to work out as perhaps Miles was, how do you extract yourself from this situation? Why do you, why does it, why does this person believe that they have the authority? Because what's being played out there is authority, it's power, it's privilege. How is it that they think they have the power, if over me, over Miles, to ask that kind, those kinds of questions, to interrogate in that way, so I'm I'm really interested in the in the human piece, and I I think um, and we may come to this. There's some other parts that people have um, said, for example, the uh, surviving Babylon list, which um, comes up earlier in the book, um, that many people found quite funny. Some parts of it quite funny, and that's a list of. Um, put together by two characters about what black people must do in order to survive the workplace. 
But to come full circle, Dave, to your question, and yes, to these characters, uh, whom we have Nigel, who is a black gay man, who has recently been appointed to a very high level position at um, a particular um, art centre. And what I've noticed, and indeed what I've tried to capture in this chapter, are the ways in which institutions, and institutions are very much the focus throughout the book, even though I'm working through the characters, what I'm really wanting readers to also pay attention to is the ways in which institutions perform engagement with racial justice. And I really want to underscore that word perform and draw attention to the performativity, the the acts of performance, if you will. And so I've become really interested in the way that institutions make announcements about the first black, the youngest black insert, you know, and, and I'm really curious about that and why these moments deserve such recognition. And I'm not saying that they don't, mind you, but I'm interested in the way in which they are set up and presented by the institution because they're presented as moments of progress and um, advancement. But I think there's other questions we should be asking, which is why in this day and age, with so much progress purportedly having been made, with so much legislation, uh, equalities legislation, why is it that we find so many people, so many black people still being labelled the first or the youngest? And so that's what I'm really focusing on in this chapter. So as I say, Nigel's black, gay, been appointed the senior level uh, role, yes. um, and then we bear witness to his experiences as he t- tries to take forward his brief. Okay, so he's been appointed as a national centre for the creative arts, as its director of programming and commissions, and I basically I, I style this particular chapter slightly differently, so it begins with a press release about his appointment, mirroring many listeners will recognise the press releases that we see across the piece when similar appointments are made. But what I'm really interested in here, Dave, is the way, yes, we've seen the announcement and we've spoken about press releases, but what happens once a person is in their role? How are they supported? How are they valued? How are they recognised? How are they enabled or empowered to fulfill the full extent of their brief. And the backdrop of my argument is that we should be asking questions about why it is in this day and age that we are, (coughs) excuse me, sorry, why is in this day and age about why we still don't have better representation at senior levels. And I have set out a scenario, a series of moments in this chapter where Nigel is working alongside the CEO of this um, centre, of the Centre for Creative Arts, and her name's Sally. She's a white woman, working class background, and she thinks that she really 
gets it when it comes to race. So it's not her brief. It's not her role. This is a role that is sits within Nigel's domain. But what we bear witness to time and time again in this chapter is the way in which Sally undermines Nigel, the ways in which she um, asserts her authority and silences Nigel. And again, I won't give away any spoilers, but what I'm inviting the uh, reader to do is to think about why there are so few uh, senior people of colour within leading organisations across all sectors. Is this really because they lack the skills and the talent, the qualifications to reach those positions? Question mark. Or is there something going on within the cultural landscape of the organisation that promotes certain ways of being, of acting, certain values that work to the exclusion of people of colour? And that's precisely what we see play out between Nigel and Sally. I was about to come in with a sort of major spoiler for Nigel's story there. but um, go ahead. (laughs) I mean, what what struck me about about that uh, interplay was... Um, you, you mentioned this idea of, you know, the kind of the press releases around, you know, the first, you know, the celebration of organisational change through um, Nigel's appointment. But also there was a really familiar end uh, to, to, to his story with the institution. And it's, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the payoff to the story is one that will be um, familiar, you know, to almost anyone who has any understanding of not just actually, you know, arts and creative industries, but, you know, we, we can see uh, the pattern across many of the professions that you're hoping to engage with and, and you're analysing in the book. And, and, and what sort of really stands out, I, I guess, is that kind of sense of um, the book trying to help to make sense of stories that are familiar, you know, trying to kind of go beyond the, oh, I remember that, you know, from reading it in the newspaper or something like that. And, and actually now I understand some of the, the dynamics uh, underpinning those stories. The book does this in lots of different ways. And I mean, there's, there's a huge amount um, of, of kind of fascinating, not, not just, um, you know, these individual narratives, but examples of organisational behaviour. And, you know, you've talked about the importance of analysing organisations to the book. The, the, the place that I suppose I'd like to, to, to sort of like round up or, you know, finish on, despite, you know, the, the sort of wealth of stuff we, we could have talked about it is the very end of the book. And, and I, I suppose in a, a sort of useful way, but uh, from, from my point of view as a reader, a sort of slightly depressing, but, but kind of familiar way um, for, for understanding how race is, is constructed discursively in, you know, the British press in, in British discourses, but also more globally, the, the, the book ends by saying, look, I know there are going to be these objections to my analysis. So I'm sort of preemptively, um, you know, countering them or, or offering analysis of them. And, and you do this in, in, in lots of different ways. And the, the, there's a few good questions. One of them, I think, is around um, sort of white people's understanding of, of, of race and, and, and kind of white behaviours preserving racism in, 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 in our current age. But I think more broadly, I'd be interested to know, I, I suppose, the, 
the process of having to think about preemptive objections, having to think about, you know, how to counter them um, and maybe some examples of, of how you've done that. Yeah, thanks. That's a really great and really provocative question. I think, you know, I, it's not difficult to think about the process of preempting questions because I'm a black woman who experiences racism. So, and I am a black professor, a black female professor who's navigated um, the higher education system in the UK. And by default, that gives me firsthand experiences of some of the ways in which um, we, and ways in which systems operate to the exclusion of people who look like me. But I would also take it away from me in that personal context also, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but there are also people who are older, so elders who've been doing this work. And I am really interested in what they have to say and in listening to them about the patterns of their activism and the nature of the barriers and the resistance that they've faced. And if you take that lens, I think it's difficult to come to a... I think you you are compelled, Dave. I think you're compelled to look historically, to take a wide lens, if you will, to the historical landscape and examine the patterns, so the troughs and the peaks of when racial justice comes to the fore, when those moments of resistance come to the fore, when the moments of... Um, wider white engagement. We obviously saw that around George Floyd, which for many people of colour was really quite nauseating because our questions were, well, where have you been? This is not new. Are you not paying attention? So I wouldn't say that there was a formal process. I mean, there was because I had to write something on paper and try to make it make sense. But I would say that actually that process with this very small p is a part of my existence, both as an academic and as a black woman, I one learns how white people respond or are likely to respond to um, to any issues that relate to race, and it's important to learn and understand because one's survival, one's promotion, the exclusion or otherwise of one's black child is predicated on that very understanding. But I would also say it's true that as an academic, I am interested in patterns. I'm interested in trying to understand. I'm interested in absences. And we've spoken about some of those patterns today when we spoke just now, for example, about the um, press release for the the first black, the youngest black, etc. So what I wanted to do is, and this is this sits in line with my scholarship and my way of thinking, is I'm wanting people to think beyond the obvious. So let's not just fall into the lazy trope of, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? Well, would she? There is no advantage to me 
to talking about racism. There are many things I'd rather do, Dave. I'd rather be a ballet dancer, an interior designer. There are many other things I prefer to do um, and to have pursued as a career. But here we are. And so let's not just assume that this is someone who has a specific axe to grind. Let's assume that she's smart. Let's assume that the people who've experienced racism don't just have a chip on their shoulder. Let's assume that they are smart, they've got something to say. In which case, what is going on? If we're seeing these same patterns of inequality repeated time and time again, not just year after year, but decade after decade, then we must ask ourselves what's going on. And what I wanted to do in this chapter was to to pose those very fundamental questions. And I also wanted to invite white readers to think beyond the ways of being white, if you will. So, and some of the tropes that exist around racism. So, for example, I've said there's a section called It's Racist to Call White People White. Um, You Hate White People. It's really about social class. And that's one that, you know, I get a lot uh, when I stand up and present around this. There's another part that's called Not All White People Are The Same. And I, I explore those. And again, I'm exploring them not merely to be provocative, but to invite people to step outside of their normal way of thinking. And I'll close by saying this. What ultimately I'm trying to do with this book is if you imagine a huge painting, um, you're in a gallery, for example, and you're viewing a huge painting, what I'm inviting the reader to do, and in particular for white readers, is to move from where they've been standing, observing that painting, maybe step back a little bit, step to the right. And what you'll notice is that the light falls on that painting in a slightly different way, that it reveals and brings into sharp relief um, areas that you thought were just images or shadows. And that's precisely the framework that's needed to help you as white people and to help us all better understand the racial code.